This week in The Function Room, episode 30, it's anyone's guess, the maths of guesswork. David Malone of Maynooth University and the Hamilton Institute is my guest. I ride the wave of ignorance through some big topics like information theory, entropy, what makes a good password, and how hard would it be to figure out what I had for breakfast. But first, I notice David has that all-important mathematician background behind him in the interview. A whiteboard with lots of squiggly symbols. I have to ask. Oh, this is an interesting bit of work. There's a, there's an amazing way of factorizing numbers uh, called Pollard's row method. Pollard's row. Yeah, it looks like it should be like the, it, there's no obvious reason why it should work, but you try it and it works. Okay. And uh, I've taught it a few times in cryptography. And last year, one of my colleagues was teaching cryptography. And for it, you have to pick a function. And they always say, just use x squared plus one as the function. And the students asked in the class, what other functions would work and why? And so I had a summer student working on what other functions would work. And I can, it, it doesn't seem to be written down anywhere, even though it's a really well-documented method. Basically, only polynomials work. Okay. Uh, and it was really interesting to discover it because like, I searched through all the papers I can find mentioning this thing and all the textbooks. And they all just say, like, use x squared plus one or try a different polynomial if that doesn't work. And, uh, but in fact, they're more or less your only choice. I'd say the people who developed it knew, but they never bothered to write it down. So wow. I plan to write a little article with the student to say why, why this is the case. Very good. Okay. It's, it's always a little thrill for me as uh, an ex- outsider when my stereotypes of what mathematicians look like is completely confirmed by the presence of some absolutely pivotal equation on the screen behind them. So thank you for that. Uh, for listeners at home, you won't realize what I'm looking at, but it, this Pollard Row business, it looks amazing. I can see Zs, I can see equal signs, and uh, it looks very, and a neat handwriting as well too is crucial. So thank you for, oh, thank th- thanks for briefly welcoming me into your world. Uh, my guest is David Malone. David, what do you do for a living? I am uh, a researcher and a lecturer, I guess. I work in Minnesota University, and I'm split between the maths and stats department and an institute called the Hamilton Institute, which does work uh, all across the numerate areas of science, basically. We have researchers working in all kinds of different areas, but we're often particularly mathematical because the numerate thing is part of our focus. Very good. And we'll probably talk about Hamilton in another episode, or indeed another 10 episodes, it keeps cropping up both him and his institute. Uh, but uh, in this one, uh, I was intrigued by, because I asked you, what kind of things do you like talking about? And you started mentioning the mathematics of guessing. And mm. one thing I love talking about is where you take one of the more common, mundane words that we take for granted in the English language and find out that it can be appended to a sentence beginning with the mathematics of. So we're going to talk about guesswork. and But to start with, uh, we're going to be talking about guesswork, I suppose, in the area of guessing passwords and all of that. But just jumping back from that, let's talk about information and what does information mean in a mathematical sense? Because I see it cropping up, you know, black holes, information goes missing, um, information, how it's stored and all that. But I still think of information as words. Uh, tell me about inf- what information means to you. 
Sure. So I probably take the view of Shannon, who was a, ma- a mathematician or engineer, maybe in uh, who did a lot of work in the fifties, uh, and uh, he's probably recognised as one of the people who is the founder of the information age stuff. So I guess we've had an awful lot of interesting revolutions in science, but he has really sort of facilitated all the things that happen now that we take for granted, like sending information around on mobile phones, storing information on computers, all different things like this. So all the things that you can store on a computer these days are more or less, we have this cliche, they're stored as zeros and ones. And how does that happen? And Shannon was the person who originally thought about how would that happen? And uh, not just how you would even store it, but how you would move it uh, move it around as well. Uh, where was Shannon? This is is it Claude Shannon? Is that right? It's Claude Shannon. So yeah. it, I guess it sounds like there's an Irish link, and unfortunately, there's not in this case. I, I think we should definitely claim him if we could find a link. Uh, you know, maybe there's a granny rule, and he can play for the Irish team or something. <laughs> but uh, no, he was he's an American scientist. And he uh, was working in Bell Labs. Bell Labs used to have this huge number of incredibly smart people working away. And what he's really known for is two papers that he wrote. And they're very, very easy to read papers if you've uh, a moderate amount of, say, I'd say you could read quite a lot of what he wrote. If you had good leaving cert mathematics, you could probably sit down and read it and work your way through it. And he wrote one paper about... uh, the mathematical theory of communication. And then he wrote another one about the mathematical theory of secrecy. Yeah, okay. And they really, as I was at a talk last week where somebody was saying, he wrote these two papers and nearly everything else everybody has done since is kind of footnotes to what he did. It's like it's expanded out enormously. And some of the things he didn't do in full mathematical rigor but essentially, he was right in everything he said. And where the milieu he was in, he was in Bell Labs and... Bell, as I understand it, it's a big telephone company. So they're in the area of passing information over long distances. What were they looking for? Why why was information a big deal for him? So I suppose people were... So the one side of information was uh, he was interested in things like if somebody gives you an excerpt of something, you can often guess what's uh, what's going to happen. Like, I'm terrible for ending people's sentences. You know, somebody gets to the end of the sentence, and we all know how the sentence is going to uh, end. And in, sen- in a sense, the end of the sentence is not carrying more information because you know what it's going to say by the time you get there. So he was interested in this kind of idea that some information we get is very surprising and some information is less surprising. And he tied this to the probability of of something happening. A very unlikely event carries a lot of information in some sense, whereas a very likely event, if you're 100% certain something is going to happen, then you've learned nothing new from it. And so he put together this theory of information and put down a way of measuring how much information is in something. And so essentially, if you have a list of the possible outcomes that could happen, you know, the different things a person might say or uh, the diff- the next word in a sentence or something like this, you could assess the probabilities of those happening. And he said, well, if you use this formula to calculate uh, what ends up now being called the Shannon entropy of the uh, of the event, that tells you something about the information. And he produced the formula on one of these kind of intuitive bases. He, sa- he said... Uh, he wanted things like, suppose we have two independent events. One of them is what the weather is going to be like today. And another one is what the lotto numbers 
are going to be drawn. Those two things don't depend on any in, in, on one another in any way. And so when we put together those two random events, what we should get is the information should just add together. Uh, you know, you take the information about what the weather's going to be like, take the information about the lottery numbers, and they should just add up. And so using a few rules like that, that's how he derived his formula for information. And it turns out it, it relates to all kinds of interesting things. It lets you do uh, estimates for uh, if you can send information, how quickly can you transfer that information from one place to another, given how good the transmission uh, system that you have is. So he tied a whole bunch of things together in kind of a useful way. And just and to just to jump back to yeah exactly yeah just to jump back to something you mentioned there about uh, the probability that you know what the information is makes it less valuable is that almost a mathematical sense of just tell me something I don't know it, it is it's very like that and in some situations it doesn't really make as much sense as you might think I always remember discussing this with one of my undergraduate lectures at some point and he was saying. Uh, suppose I give you the static from an old TV screen. It's a bunch of gray, black, white squares. It's highly random. And in Shannon's sense, that contains a lot of information because if you were asked to guess what the static on the screen is like, you would be really hard pushed to do it. And whereas on the other hand, a picture of the Mona Lisa, if I give you the picture of Mona Lisa, it's clearly a very beautiful thing, but it doesn't carry so much information because if I removed a little square out of it, you would very quickly maybe be able to paint that square back in again or at least make a good guess at it. And so maybe it doesn't capture all the ideas of information, but in terms of storage and to some extent, as I say, guessing uh, and to uh, transmission, it's actually quite a good measure. Okay, so boiling it down to storage, transmission and guessing are secrecy. And I know we'll get to guessing in a while uh, first of all, storage. So you're in the 50s and you're trying to figure out how to store, I suppose as it was then, data, words, in a way yep. that had permanence and could be extracted. Is that the kind of stuff they were worried about in Bell Labs? That's it. So the I guess people were beginning to build... So at this stage, we have computers. People have computers since the 40s because there was a, the effort to, uh, to like make widely available computers is almost something that came out of the war. And so it's beginning to get to the stage where people have computers, people are thinking about storage of data. And I guess the initial types of storage that they have is analogous to the zero one type stuff. Well, almost all the computers were storing stuff in zeros and ones. It's, you know, perhaps a little uh, magnet that's pointing one way or another, or it's a capacitor that's charged up or not charged up. And these are zeros and ones. And so the question is then, how can you efficiently store the information that you want to store as these zeros and ones? And so you may need to do something like, if you want to store uh, the text of a novel or something like that, you're going to have to decide how to encode that text. And the standard way of doing it is pretty simple. You do something like, well, I'm going to choose the number one for A and the number two for B and the number three for C. And then you get to the end of the alphabet and you go, oh, well, I need some digits as well. So you add those in and then you need some punctuation marks and all these kinds of things. And maybe that's enough to store all your English novels, but then you find that, oh, uh, maybe there's a bit of Latin or Irish or something in the novel and you need to put an accent in. And then suddenly you need a new type of encoding. 
And so people were interested in the question of how do you encode things efficiently? And this is the kind of thing that Sam or that um, Shannon was interested in because uh, he was saying, well, suppose that you're the language that you write in, you know things like in English, some letters are very common and some are uncommon. So you might be able to store something more efficiently by, say, making E. E is going to be really common. So maybe we use a pattern of bits that's really short for that. We just use a couple of bits. But a Z, Zs don't come up that often, and Js don't come up that often. So maybe we use a much longer string of bits for those. And uh, perhaps then we can save space by doing that. Instead of allocating the same number of bits to every letter, common letters get short patterns, and less common things get longer patterns. And uh, in fact, Shannon didn't necessarily come up. He came up with the theory for this. Other people put quite a lot of the practical schemes in place. So there was a guy called Hoffman uh, who came up. He basically managed to figure out how to encode letters of an alphabet in a way that hit Shannon's estimate more or less bang on. And the way he discovered it is quite funny. He uh, was given an assignment and he was told either he could try and find a better way of encoding things or he could do the exam at the end of the term. <laughs> And so for this course, he was working away in his PhD. This was one of his courses he had to take. And he was just about to give up and start studying for the exam. And he realized he came up with an algorithm, essentially, that would give you the within one bit of the perfect coding for individual letters. And so since then, people have been working on smarter schemes for, for coding. And this is partially why when we move data around today, we often do things like compress it beforehand. And this idea of compression is using Shannon's idea of trying to express common things quickly and trying to express less common things with longer strings. And this lets you encode your data more efficiently. Okay. And then transmission, I mean, that takes you into like the wire, the distance, heat, all that kind of thing. What, what were they thinking then? Like, are we talking about... So before, was it Morse code? Like, was it just patterns or the voice itself? What were the challenges? Like, again, when they when they started looking at information in the in the Shannon way, uh, again, because I'm, I'm, it's almost like I'm having to unlearn what information is. So I still think of talking and text. But so again, in in those early days of transmission of data, what was it? What was it like? What were they thinking? So about? I guess people were doing Morse code. Morse code had been around for a long time. And people uh, at this stage, of course, we have telephones because he's working in a telephone company and people know that you can send voice around. And in a sense, Morse code and uh, voice look kind of different. Like Morse code is ons and offs. It already looks kind of computery. Um, whereas voice seems like a much more complicated thing, like you have different frequencies moving around and all these kinds of things. But people understood in both those systems that you could have noise in the system. And I guess people, I'm trying to think of good examples of noise that people know. I suppose if you're in a pub and it's very noisy around you, it can be quite difficult to talk to people. And to communicate effectively, you often have to talk louder or, you know, maybe you wave your arms around mm. to give an extra source of information to the people and things like this. So people kind of knew that you could overcome noise by being louder. Uh, and transmitting more quickly. But Shannon kind of put limits on this. He was able to show that at least, so he assumed some nice mathematical things about the noise um, 
And then he was able to show that, in fact, it doesn't ma really matter if you encode your information as something like sound, where it's analog and you've got all these different parts moving around, or whether you encode your data as something like Morse code or bits, where it seems much more on and off, that the amount of information that you can send either way is kind of the same. So whether you do your communication as a discrete set of symbols being transmitted, which would be like Morse code, or you do your communication using uh, an analog signal, the amount of information you can squeeze through is going to be the same regardless. And so this is there's a bunch of what people call Shannon channel capacity results, which tells you if you're trans using this much energy to transmit and there's this much noise, this is the absolute maximum amount of energy that, or, or information that you can squeeze through. And so it, and somehow it gives you a target that you can aim okay. at. Uh, and tells the engineers that, you know, after this point, there's no point in trying harder. You're just wasting your time. You're not going to get any, anything more more through. Okay, so if you're back then armed with this uh, Shannon channel limitation, you know you have to get X amount of information across this distance, and it requires... And then, that, then you work out, that gives you an, an idea about how much energy... Or sorry, you yeah. know how far you have to send something and what the noise is, that gives you an idea of how much energy you need uh, to transmit a certain amount of information. And then if the energy is greater than what your, what your, what your, like your kit, your kit, your yeah, yeah. or, or, the, or, the, or the thickness right of the wire or whatever. Okay. <laughs> so what had been trial and maybe trial and error or why am I not hearing anything now became that'll never work because we've done yeah. the maths. Okay. All right. Um, briefly, just without getting too deep into it, what is the, that the maths to work out the limit of how much information you can send in a particular system is what is that maths called? What's that branch of mathematics? So this is again, this is all part of information, information. theory. Okay. Yeah, and is he yeah. is and he basing that on top of like uh, sequences and series? Is he basing it on top of algebra or calculus or a physics? lot of it? Yeah built on top of probability again okay. and random processes and things like this because the 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 assumptions here is that the things that you don't know are random for some definition of random and so that pulls you down towards probability and these kinds of things as a way of understanding what's going on it's amazing though that again like in this probability theory pen and pencil there's no empirical data you're working out based on equations and you know all the bits of maths you know and it leads to, for from New York to Washington, you can send this amount of information with the kit you've bought. If you want to send more, you need a bigger, you need a bigger you machine, need a bigger amplifier, or Big, something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, a bigger uh, satellite the, dish. Yeah, okay. There is actually a Russian chap who is operating uh, now. I won't won't get the dates quite right, but there is a chap called Kolmogorov who was a Russian scientist, Russian mathematician, and set down the, uh, if you study probability formally these days, you learn a set of axioms that probability follows. And Komogorov is the guy who nailed down the axioms for probability and formalized it. And in fact, he did his own version of information theory at a similar kind of time. And his version was slightly different. His idea was that the amount of information in something was the smallest so if you gave me some, uh, say, novel that you wanted to output, maybe you want to output the works of Shakespeare, and people talk about the monkeys banging at the typewriters, and uh, Kolmogorov's idea was that actually the amount of information in something is the smallest computer program that can output it. 
And uh, this it sounds like an entirely different way of looking at it. But if you go in and you start thinking about it in terms of compression and how uh, Shannon's theory relates to the compression of information, it turns out the ideas are actually very similar. They were both looking at the same sides of the same coin. And it's kind of nice because Karl Margarov is the guy who was formalizing probability and Shannon was using the probabilistic stuff to define a different way of thinking about information. It's quite nice. Okay. Uh, briefly, compressing information, what's involved? Is that the encoding you're talking about, yeah, like yeah. representing so a long string as a shorter string? This is a, a uh, so the, the basic version of this, so this guy Hoffman came up with a Hoffman encoding for individual letters. And that's kind of, if, if you assume that each letter in a text is independent of one another, Hoffman's encoding is the best that you can do. But in uh, data, typically there are correlations between the things. So if it's a piece of English text, if you get a letter Q, more or less, more than likely the next one is U. And so that means there are dependencies. And so people try to come up with uh, compression schemes that can take this into account as well. And so if you send... Um, uh, say a large text file, maybe a uh, ebook or something like this to somebody, it will be compressed. And it will be compressed using some really smart compressor that spots these patterns by looking at the text over and over again and figures out essentially a small computer program to output the text in a neat way. Okay. And um, you can estimate, in fact, the best way of estimating the um, entropy, Shannon's entropy of a language now is to take one of those compressors because they're so clever and to run it on a chunk of text from the language and see what the output is. And it will you can uh, measure how much information per letter that language is giving you. And it varies across different human languages. So some languages, you know the text is longer typically in that language and the uh, entropy estimates tell you the same thing when you go and do that kind of calculation. Okay, so you mentioned entropy, which I think would probably bring us anyway to the the third leg of information uh, for this episode anyway. I've noticed lots to it, but uh, guesswork. Tell me about, and all that kind of thing. Tell me about entropy first when it comes to information. First of all, what does entropy mean in general? And then what does it mean in this context? So I, I'll be a little bit careful. So the the... Physicists have an idea of entropy, which is to do with, uh, it's usually tied in with heat. And it's to do with if you have something like a gas or a hot object, and you have a lot of small molecules moving around, um, the entropy is something that you can measure about that gas. And we have this, these laws of thermodynamics, or rather the physicists who I shouldn't claim I'm a physicist, uh, but the laws of thermodynamics say that if you have a closed system, the entropy is always going up. And this had been discovered in the Industrial Revolution. It was a really important factor. It was like the, in the same way that Shannon's channel stuff tells you you can't do any better when you're transmitting information. If you go back to the Industrial Revolution and they're trying to build the best steam engine possible, that's where the ideas about entropy really came into play because it, it allowed you to say you couldn't build a steam engine that was any more efficient than a certain amount. Okay, based on the assumption uh, that things tend to fall apart, is it that entropy is disorder, yeah, so and as time goes on, entropy or disorder naturally increases? increases. Okay. Yeah, and you can trace it very specifically when you're moving around heat. The, there's a it has an implication for entropy. There is actually a common uh, probabilistic view of both the 
uh, information theory entropy and the physics entropy. So uh, there was a nice mathematician who worked in Dublin for years, a called John Lewis, who worked in the Dublin Institute for Advanced Studies. And he was a theoretical physicist, but he was also a applied uh, probability. That was one of his main areas. And he applied it both in information theory and in physics. And there's sort of a common view where in both cases, you have a lot of independent or almost independent things happening at the same time. And you can slot them into the same theory. And you, if you run the theory through with the physics, you get their version of entropy. And if you run the information or through with information theory, you get Shannon's entropy. Okay. Uh, and in one case, they'd consider it to me measure disorder. And in another case, it's a reasonable measure of information. Okay. Uh, and if you look at the formulas, the, uh, if you look at um, the information theory formula, it has probabilities and logs in it. And if you look at the uh, thermodynamics or the physics formula, it has logs in it. And they're both, it's like you're taking the log of something that's like a count of something or a probability of something. And so they are, they're linked at an abstract level, but in practice, they're measuring kinds of different things. So. Okay. All right. So, so so, from a physics point of view, it's to do with heat and how heat flows and I suppose the predictability of how fast or slow something loses energy or increases disorder and all that kind of thing. Uh, in information theory, so when you talk about Shannon entropy, um, like would I, what does it look like? Is what it, does it tell you? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so there is a nice way to understand it, um, which is that if I'm allowed to, suppose you have a piece of information, we've calculated the probabilities in advance, so uh, you might be, you might have five different messages for me, and we know those probabilities. And sorry, and the, the probabilities that you know what the message is, is, is yeah. that what you mean? Okay. So uh, perhaps let's uh, let me see if I can come up with a, a reasonable example. So perhaps I'm we're wondering what you're going to have for breakfast today, and there are only really four possibilities. You have a cereal, you have a bagel, uh, you have a coffee, or you have a uh, yogurt, something right. like this. And I know I've studied column carefully, and I have assigned probabilities to all those things. I know you usually have cereal, so I've assigned maybe a fifty percent chance you do that, and I've given probabilities for each one. Um, and what I can do is I can try and ask a series of yes, no questions to you to determine what you had for breakfast. And I might say, and I'm trying to do, ask you as few questions as possible, but I'm allowed any type of question. So I might ask you, oh, well, I know half of the time it's going to be serial. So actually, that's a pretty good first question. So I'm going to ask Colin first, is it serial? And you say yes or no, and then I suppose you say, no, it's not serial today. Then I have to think about what my next question is, and it might be, well, actually, most of the rest of the time, it's going to be uh, a yogurt, but so what I might ask you next is, is it a yogurt or is it one of the other two? And what Shannon's, what Shannon's entropy is telling me is, on average, how many yes-no questions do I need to ask to figure it out? Okay, and the most, and in... You're the, it's always the drive for efficiency, for least yeah. number of questions to be asked. Yeah. And if it, in a reason, maybe there's a good reason why. So these yes, no questions correspond to bits 
So if you imagine you were trying to transmit the information to a computer, you'd be sending it zeros and ones instead of yes, yeses and nos. And this is why, you know, there's this nice correspond correspondence between number of yes, no questions and the uh, entropy required for storage. Okay. Now, just getting to get out right here. So Shannon is talking about what is the um, number of yes, no questions. Is that the entropy of the breakfast, the column breakfast system, or is entropy elsewhere in the equation, just so I'm clear? No, no, that, that's essentially it. So yeah. if the system that we're studying is what does column have for breakfast, and we calculate the entropy of that system, the number that we get will be the average number of yes, no questions somebody needs to ask you. So maybe you get to the office each morning and people play a game where they try to guess your breakfast. Yeah. Then it will be the average number of questions they need to ask if they're asking their questions in an optimal way. And obviously, therefore, the higher the number of questions, the more mysterious or unpredictable exactly. or the more guesswork more required for yeah. for my system. Right. Okay. So seems trivial in a in a system of breakfast guessing with four possible <laughs> outcomes. Um, so the value of this is scaling it up. What what kind of systems are we talking about guessing then? And is that is that so I'm not encrypting my breakfast choice. I'm not telling any lies about it. Or is the nope. fact I'm not telling you I'm not telling you immediately what my breakfast was, is that a form of encryption? In fact, there's an interesting thing here. So this way of taking information and writing it down efficiently is what people in mathematics or information theory would call coding. Okay. Okay. We're in fact trying to write the thing down as clearly as possible. And you can do coding for storage, which is kind of what I'm talking about there. But you can also do coding for transmission, which is where you're in the pub, it's noisy, and you need to add extra information to get it across, or you need to increase the power. So people talk about error-correcting codes, and this is when you send something, it goes through whatever the medium for transmission is, and at the far end it comes back a bit garbled, but you want to make sure that the other person can still decode and figure out what the right thing is. So uh, mathematically or technically, this is called coding and decoding. When you get to cryptography, there's something new going on where you want to send some information, but you don't want it to be decoded. Okay, So we call that, when you do something to the message to make it hard to understand what's going on, uh, you call it encryption and decryption. So people commonly would often call that encoding and decoding, but when you're talking technically, you use these different words to try and distinguish the two things. And so... There are, there's a principle for modern cryptography, which is called Kirchhoff's principle. And Kirchhoff's principle is that if you're desi designing some one of these schemes for keeping information secret, you should be able to share the scheme with everybody. And as long as they don't know the single secret bit of information for the scheme, it should still be secure. So this is a, a kind of a surprise to people. You might think that if you want to design a secure thing, you should keep it secret from everybody. But the modern thinking is different. The modern thinking is you should share it with as many people as you can because they're likely to find flaws with the scheme. And if it's flawed, then everybody finds out at the same time, at least, as opposed to one group of people still using it while it's known to be flawed. And so Shannon was building on top of these kind of ideas. And he was thinking about, oh, well, you've here we've a scheme that everybody knows about. And we have a secret piece of information that's used with the key with the scheme, which is usually called a key for like locking your secrets and unlocking your secrets. 
And Shannon started thinking about, well, maybe the person who chooses the key, maybe we can learn something about how the key was chosen. And so maybe we don't know what it is. It's some sense it's random from our point of view then. So can we apply all this kind of ideas about guessing things and information to the key in combination with the message? And so Shannon's second big paper was doing that, talking about when can information be secret and things like if I send a large amount of information that's encrypted, um, people can start attacking it by just trying every single possible key. And if you send a very short amount of information, what will happen is it, it'll decode correctly mul for multiple keys, but you'll get different messages. Uh, and in that case, then you don't know the person who's attacking you by doing this brute force trying all the keys doesn't know which one the right message is. So you're kind of getting a little bit of extra information security out of that. Uh, and so Shannon was able to do things like figure out the trade-off between the, the key size and the information that you're trying to protect and things like this. So the uh, his probably the most commonly known result from that paper is that if you want to be perfectly secure and you have a secret message to send to somebody, your secret key must be as long as the message is in order to secure it. And the secret key kind of has to be perfectly random as well. So this is called a one-time pad, and it's painfully the only place it's used in the real world is things like secrets between governments where they agree a one-time pad in advance. Maybe that's recorded, and then it's used to record conversations between or encrypt conversations between presidents or something like this. But he again, he's kind of setting the limits on exactly how much secrecy can you achieve. Okay, so where does that fit in then with guesswork and how many like the entropy of a particular of a, of a particular system so this is kind of interesting this is i got interested in this uh a long time ago when computers now will often like if you load a web page it's probably picked a secret key for you encrypted the web page with it sent it to you unencrypted it and you know all this has happened in the background and you never knew it was going on and there's a question about how do, how on earth do computers pick things like secret keys? Because computers are designed to be kind of deterministic. You know, if you run the same program on the same data twice, you'd be disappointed if you got a different answer. And so there's a big challenge in computers providing randomness, really, because they're designed to do the opposite thing. And these days... Well, in fact, so in the 90s, it was very well known that computers weren't very good at randomness. And so people have been trying to fix this issue. And uh, sorry, sorry to interrupt. Uh, not being yeah. good at randomness, what does that look like? Does that mean that yeah. you can predict the the key they're going to pick because of how they're made? or Yeah. So there was examples of people doing things like in early web browsers, you could... Um, the you would download an encrypted web page. And of course, the question is, if somebody's watching your internet traffic, could they have got the contents of the web page back? And somebody had a look at the source code for the web browser, and they discovered that the uh, secret that was used was supposed to be, say, 100 bits of a secret. But most of that was the time of day that the web page was downloaded, which everybody knew. So you fill that in, and then they looked at what other the bits of information there were, and they discovered that there was only 16 bits that they couldn't guess immediately. And so they just worked through all possible combinations of 16 bits. So that would be two by two by two by two by two, 16 times. 
and they were able to decrypt the web pages. And so the question is, in a world where computers are doing very deterministic things like this, how do you change that so that somebody watching the computer from the outside can't guess what's going on? And so people started doing things like uh, maybe every time you press the uh, key on your computer, the computer times that incredibly accurately and stores that information. And every time a piece of data comes in off the network, the computer times what time it arrives incredibly accurately. And it takes all that information and squishes it together and uses that. The information that isn't quite random, but it's something that nobody else can measure very well. And so they now see randomness in it because there's uncertainty. And they use that to uh, generate whatever secret key is needed. Okay. So that that timestamp of of the keystroke is a very long timestamp on a pick an atomic clock and it's boils yeah, yeah. it down it's to the down to, uh, nanoseconds or something yeah. like this. So that's a sequence of numbers that is very is unpredictable unless you're literally following every keystroke sequentially as as they're being done, which you can't do because you don't know when I typed the thing in order exactly. to send it. Okay. And so inside your computer's operating system there are things working away so some of the chip manufacturers have tried to improve on this situation. So they've done stuff like built circuits, which are deliberately badly behaved. Um, the kind of circuits that if you were an engineer, probably you designed one, somebody would scream at you, but they put uh, special circuits inside the chips. So now some of the CPUs, you can ask them, oh, I'd like a hundred random bits. And they use this badly behaved circuit to do it. But uh, a lot of the operating systems actually also collect up this other type of information as well squirrel it away, and when your uh, web browser needs a random number to secure some communication, it has a good source of these things. Getting back to guessing and the maths of guessing, what is the the big guessing that's going on in uh, computing now, and what is the maths behind it? Sure. So you could try and guess these kind of random numbers that I was talking about computers are generating. Computers have got too good at it is the real problem that you'd, uh, you'd spend a long time trying to get your fingers around them. But people are a bit more predictable than computers. People have kind of randomness in them, but the randomness is much more skewed than it might be in some specially designed circuit in a computer or some random typing, typing of a keystroke. So I got interested in how people were choosing passwords and how hard it would be to choose a password or how hard it would be to guess a password, and what was the right mathematical measure of that. So, as I say, a lot of these questions in information theory relate to trying to do things optimally. And so the question would be, suppose I study column, and instead of studying column's breakfast, I study your password habits. And I make, uh, I, I study the kind of things that you're interested in, and I think, oh, well, you know, people often use their family names. So I find the, uh, uh, I find names of your family members and I go, oh, maybe he's used that as a, a password. Or maybe I go, oh, well, Colm likes uh, numerical patterns. So maybe he likes one, two, three, four, five, six, and maybe that's a good pattern. And so you can imagine studying either a person or a group of people and uh, estimating the chance that they choose different passwords. And now you're in a situation where you have a list of probabilities and kind of events, which is per the person choosing the probability. And so you can go through and you can try and do information theory with it. So for instance, I could calculate the entropy of that. And you could ask, is that the right thing for, or is entropy the right measure for guessing passwords? And it is in some senses, if the game is 
Uh, I want to guess Colm's password and I can ask him any yes, no question. Uh, you know, is your password in this list here? Does it start with A to Z? Uh, um, then maybe that's uh, entropy is a good measure. But usually when you're trying to guess somebody's password, it's not a series of any yes, no questions. You just have to go to the login box, you put in their username, you put in their password, and it says yes or no. So the only type of question that you're allowed to ask is, is it this single password right now? And so it turns out entropy isn't the right measure for measuring that. There is a different thing which has become known as guesswork, which is ha that quantity there. So essentially, the guesswork is pretty easy to calculate. What you do is you take uh, the most common password and you guess that first, because that seems to be the correct strategy. And then once you've guessed that, the best strategy is to guess the most common remaining password, which is the second most common one, and then the third most common one, and then the fourth, and you keep going. And you ask, how many t uh, guesses does it take to do that? Well, with the first probability, you stop in one step. With the second probability, you stop in two steps. With the third probability, you stop in three steps. And so you can write down a little sum that gives that. And interestingly, the sum doesn't have any logs in it, but it is important that the probabilities are sorted uh, from most frequent to last frequent. And this turns out to be a reasonable measure for measuring how long it's going to take somebody to uh, guess a password. But there are a few caveats on that. They have to be smart enough to have a good estimate of what your passwords would be. And they also have to not give up partway through because otherwise some of the passwords, like there are millions of passwords somebody might choose. And if you guess all the way down to the millionth password, that's going to be a very small chance of a very large number. And that can kind of skew the value that you get out for the average number of guesses. Okay, so uh, just to take a step back. So you're trying to guess an individual's password and is does the probabilities uh does that give you like whether it's worth your while doing it is that is that where the efficiency comes in like what is yeah, the so what is the, the value of the maths as opposed to brute force which is yeah you know you, you talked about a very simple yes no question um and what's wrong with sequentially asking all those questions for infinity i guess because you don't have all all day and infinity <laughs> to do it but what's What's the math saying? Is the maths of password guessing or guesswork saying, here's where you should use your time? Like in these conditions, guess that person's password. Don't bother, don't bother guessing this person's password. Is that is that what's happening or have I oversimplified? No. So you can use it for things like that. So the first thing the maths would tell you is actually that thing, which is almost obvious in this case, which is you should start with the most likely one and you should work your way down. You can write out other strategies, and then you can show that this, of all the strategies, this is the best one. And then you can ask questions like, some of this is kind of empirical, so you have to go off and do a little bit of statistics. You can ask things like, well, in practice, how do people choose passwords? And the answer to that isn't so clear because usually, well, people have tried going up to people on the street and asking, well, what's your password? And uh, I think if you're friendly enough, actually, you can get some people to tell you, but it's not enough data to make a a reasonable, um, a reasonable start in it. So when I got interested in this question, I was doing a little bit of the theory around it, and somebody asked me in a talk, well, how do you know what these distributions of passwords look like? How, how are you going to figure this out? And I said, well, in theory, you could imagine going around and asking everybody in the world what all their passwords were and seeing how common everyone was. And then 
And I said, of course, that's not very practical. And I thought, well, we could try asking some people. So I wrote to friends that worked in places like Google and Yahoo, who have thousands of users with millions of passwords. And uh, they said they'd ask their security teams and the security teams never got back to me naturally, which was a, a little disappointing, but perhaps not surprising. Uh, but in the end, this kind of empirical side of it has been revolutionized by hackers because the hackers have been going in and stealing lists of people's passwords for quite a long time and as a sort of method of bravado now they often post the list of passwords online so suddenly where there was no data before we have quite good data so maybe 10 years ago myself and a summer student got together and we found a list of uh, like we found a, a Irish computer website that had been hacked and it, a list of passwords for there. So we knew a little bit about how Irish people chose passwords. And then we had a list of passwords from uh, some Yahoo users in Central America who had had their passwords stolen. Uh, and these were a few thousand users. So it was like quite a lot of data, we thought. And in the middle of this, uh, some people hacked a company called RockU that was producing games for Facebook at the time. And they link, leaked the passwords of, I think, 31 million people. Okay. And suddenly this whole area opened up to some kind of statistical analysis as well as a kind of abstract analysis, analysis as well. And it turns out that uh, there are a few passwords with very high frequency usually. So I mentioned one, two, three, four, five, six before. If I ever I was asked to guess somebody's password, I would start there. It's a really good place in some cases, up to you know a few percent of people choose one, two, three, four, five, six as a password, and so it's actually you know it's a very small effort for uh, one or two percent chance of success. But after these very frequent passwords, there's what people would describe as a very long tail of infrequent passwords. You know things that uh, maybe somebody has made up a pattern made on uh, based on the. Uh, registration number of their parents' car with their pet's birthday and, you know, six or seven other things, and it turns out to be a 10-digit string, and there's no way I'm going to get it. And probably nobody else has chosen that password as well. Or passwords, indeed, that are generated for people by computers, which are often very difficult to generate as well, because random number stuff on computers is now quite good. Uh, and so it tells you that it, there's quite a lot to be gained, say, by guessing the first 100 or 200 passwords or something like that. But there's a middle area in the passwords where you're making really, really slow progress and it's not so useful. And then there's an extremely long tail where if you're uh, lucky, you might stumble upon the thing, but you could be guessing for years and years and years. So these kind of charts that you may may occasionally have saw, seen giving you advice of, oh, if you pick a 16-character password with lots of digits that's pushing you out into that long tail of stuff that's hard to guess. Whereas if you're picking common things like one, two, three, four, five, six, or my password or monster or something like this. Uh, in fact, you often see when you look at lists of passwords now, whatever the website is about will feature in the top uh, <laughs> passwords. Guilty, uh, so, guilty. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. So if you look, this get, uh, this uh, company, Rocky, who had their, this database leaked, had some really popular game that was about a princess and like four of the top 20 passwords had the word princess in them or something like this. So, you know, we're all human. We all work in the same way. And that funny distribution is somehow 
a combination of human biology and psychology and sociology and all kinds of stuff all being rolled together, but it comes out into actually a moderately recognizable mathematical pattern in the end. It's, you know, within striking distance of recognizable distributions that have names in the statistical community. So, Okay, so, uh, so all this data is feeding in because of the various hacks. And indeed, I remember seeing it physically in the Science Museum in Dublin. They had a list of all the LinkedIn. LinkedIn yeah. got hacked. And so they had a giant book full of passwords. And of course, I went to look for uh, mine, <laughs> found mine, uh, but also found that it was uh, I thought it was completely unique because it was personal or related to some anecdote. And yet, because it had maybe a recognizable pattern of you could pronounce it, uh, yeah. it I, I found, you know, a hundred others. Also very funny to find all the obscene ones and all the people <laughs> who wrote, I hate my job, 24 yeah, yeah. as a password. Uh, so, so this is one of those areas where you as a mathematician, you're coming at something with, you're armed with, uh, Shannon's, you know, Claude Shannon's work, you're armed with ideas about entropy and guesswork, and then you've got a load of data. Um, is it correct to fit the curve of real life based on sociology and psychology and human behavior and and human interaction to a formula? When they match or somehow that curve, you know, where maths tells you this is the distribution of passwords and Data tells you another thing. Uh, what's going on? Is it just luck? Is the maths intrinsically based on the date on earlier data? Do you know what I mean? Because say, say an analogous yeah. thing is where you're predicting how old the universe is, and you 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 know about gravity or something like that, and then you work out yeah. something, and then you you get a measurement of a pulsar from millions and billions of light years away, and it's it very closely matches the thing you predict. When it comes to guesswork, what's going on between? You get a dose of data and the presence of hackers is not that's not written in the in the scrolls. That's random development of humanity uh, yep. hacking. Uh, and you've got people's random thoughts or not, I'm using random wrongly, I know. But you've got your sums saying this should happen. What do they match? Is it coincidence? What's happening? So I don't have a really good answer for that. So um there is so the the type of distribution that they are close to is what people commonly call a zip distribution, and you do hear this commented on um, in economics, where the crude version of this is you know that people say oh eighty percent of the wealth is owned by twenty percent of the people or something like this. So eighty twenty rules are somehow linked to the zip law stuff where you have slightly more common stuff that you might expect, but then you have a very long tail. And this kind of stuff is observed in lots of places, so it's not uncommon in language. So if you look at the uh, frequency of the use of words in English, so the is extremely common, but I don't know, erdwerk is going to be miles down the list or something like this. That has a pattern which is broadly follows one of these zip, zip distributions. And in fact, when I was looking at the password stuff, the reason I tried a zip thing to see if it matched, and it, it's not a perfect match, but you know, it's close enough that you might go, oh, it's kind of plausible at least, um, makes it feel like there's something going on underneath. And I haven't seen a really convincing explanation. It's also seen in other things, like I think if you look at the 
uh, size of volcanic eruptions, maybe they are also ZIPS distributions. And this ZIP is this ZIPF, is it? ZIPF, yeah. Okay. So uh, it is. Um, so there is probably some process driving that, and I haven't th seen a thoroughly convincing explanation of what it is. Now, in other cases, we know perfectly well that there is some kind of underlying probabilistic thing explaining like what's going on. So I, some people may have heard of the normal distribution. And the normal distribution is the kind of thing that if you take all the heights of people in a population, it's very close to a normal distribution. And it, this thing crops up in all kinds of places. And there's a reason for it. It's not an accident. There is a theorem that says, if you take a bunch of small random quantities and add them together, then you are very likely to end up with something that's normally distributed. And normal, just for to paint a picture in people's minds, it's a, a kind of a dome in the middle with tails, like big that's long it, things yeah. stretching off left and right. So most people, people are within a certain bell curve. Bell because curve, yeah. the middle bit looks a little bit like a bell, but yeah. then you've got these tails going off from the bell to, to infinity. And the fact that they go off to infinity somehow tells you that this thing must be an approximation because we don't get people who are infinitely tall and we don't get people who have a negative height either. But the theorem tells you that at least near the average behavior, the thing is going to look like this normal distribution. And there are some other theorems like that. So there are other types of behavior like the, the uh, if you do a little bit more statistics, you may hear about Poisson distributions, which are to do with things like maybe you go out and you count how many daisy plants you have in your lawn and you look at it over a square meter and you look at how that is distributed, that will probably have a Poisson distribution. And there's okay. a reason for that. There's a theorem underneath which says so. And so there are some theorems which say things about when you might expect to get something zipped out. Maybe it's not entirely clear what the underlying process that's driving it is, but there's very likely that there is actually some kind of reason for it. We're just not quite to the bottom of it yet. Okay, but the truth is out there. It, just mm. to finish up, uh, if you're picking a password now, I mean, it seems a trivial question. It sounds like, you know, don't be one of the, don't be one, two, three, four, five, six. Uh, don't be basic. Um, what is the advice? Something very personal to you? a random generated string that uh, Chrome or Microsoft Edge or Firefox will generate for you. What's your, um, but then you want memorability as well. Yeah. Uh, and, so, then, and then you want to store, if it's so weird, if you can't remember it, then you the temptation is to store it on your computer. What, as somebody who is uh, studying passwords dispassionately, not hacking, but you know, seeing all humans is uh, falling within some distribution. <laughs> what's, what's your advice for password picking? So uh, the, there is an Irish guy who works in Microsoft Research in Seattle uh, called Cormac Hurley, and I think he has the best answer for this question here. So he did a piece of research where he points out that three bits of the advice that we give to people about passwords are mutually incompatible. So one thing is we often tell people to choose passwords randomly, which is, of course, great. That makes them very hard to guess then. Uh, and then the next piece of advice is that we tell people, oh, don't reuse a password on two different websites, because if one of them is broken into and they, st they stored your password badly and the hackers steal it, then they'll be able to break into the other website. And then the third bit of advice that we give people is we say, oh, don't write passwords down. So Cormac Curley and some collaborators used these three pieces of advice, random strings, uh, don't write it down, 
and different one for each password to show that you calculate the entropy for the random strings, and then you see, oh, well, that means a human is going to have to memorize these random strings. And if it's a different password for every website, we know how many different websites people typically use. That exceeds the human capacity for remembering random mem- random information. Okay, I shouldn't beat myself says, up, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the three pieces, you know, these three pieces of advice are not compatible with humans. And so I reckon the one that has to go is don't write passwords down. So I reckon it's good advice to try and use a random string. It's good advice to use a different password for every website. And what you do is instead of writing it down, you can use a password manager or something like that to store it. So Chrome or whatever, get that it to store it or a different password manager. And that's actually closer to the solution to the problem, I think. Asking people to remember hundreds of random strings is implausible. Maybe you can remember two random strings for your password manager to log into it, and then it can do the rest of the remembering for you. And hope that the password manager itself isn't working for <laughs> working for the hackers secretly. It's all as I don't trust anyone now. Ever since I read that, uh, you know, when you get one of these websites to generate your IBAN from an account oh. number and a sort code, and it turns out like they just yoink your details. <laughs> so trust no one uh, would appear to be the thing. And it depends on where you write it down as well, too, and whether you write them down in such a way that nobody knows which website the passwords are for. But again, I suppose we think, we think, oh, is it safe to store it on a computer? Um, and the computer is protected by all sorts of layers, whereas we think a post-it stuck to the underside of your desk Nobody's ever going to look there, but they do. They do. Uh, what do you what 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 are you working on at the moment, uh, David? Obviously, you've got uh, some very cool writing on the background behind you, which is all as as I said earlier, all is something you want to see in any math mathematician's interview is neat handwriting with uh, the words suppose, function, and if contained in it. What what are you working at the moment, apart from that? So this this is a little bit, this is from another summer summer project, actually. So some of the, uh, when you get into the cryptography, um, it turns out factoring, factorizing numbers is important uh, because it's very easy to multiply two numbers together. But when the numbers get big, factorizing them is hard. And these kind of asymmetric problems where one direction is easy and the other direction is hard are really useful in cryptography. Uh, But there's a method that we would teach to undergraduates. It's called the Pollard Row Method. And it seems like magic. You turn the handle on it, um, and it gives you factors for numbers far far more quickly than it has any right to. Uh, And as part of it, you have to pick a function. And uh, the students were asking what kind of functions work. And with this summer student, uh, we've got a list of basically all the functions. It's only the polynomials, which you have to learn about for the leaving cert that work with this method. And somehow that's a a nice little extra thing that we've we've learned. Okay. So uh, what else would you be doing in a wet summer? Only that kind of stuff. (laughs) Okay. Uh, David Malone, I'm sure we'll be talking lots more in the future about Hamilton institutes and all sorts but thanks very much for that introduction to entropy and claude shannon and cryptography i didn't even get to ask you why logarithms keep popping up but i feel like again another episode needed for that uh best of luck with pollard row and finding all that out uh, may you fill many blackboards and whiteboards and dramatically come up with the answer at the end thanks for coming into the function room that's it from the function room this week thanks so much to david malone so much to revisit there and he's given a brilliant introduction to all things information theory and guesswork 
and I'll definitely be chatting to him again soon. So, if you liked and enjoyed this episode, uh, please give us a review on your podcast platform of choice and share and let other people know. But for now, I've been Colm O'Regan. This was The Function Room. Talk to you next week. Bye-bye.